ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello, thank you for downloading another podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. Are we lulling people into a false sense of security with the regularity of these these episodes? Because they really are coming thick and fast. Almost certainly yeah. we are. Yes, yes. I think so. Because yeah. also, it's there's a time of year when publishers put out all their red-hot books. Yeah. And we're in it. Yes, we are. Uh, yeah. At the moment. And then the, uh, the more risky and experimental Experimentatious. Is that a word? Experimentatious? No, experimental. Experimental yeah. will work, I think. Yeah. Uh, will be January and February. So we'll be surreal. Yes, they will. Uh, after Christmas. That's when we will get experimental. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I do think my word was slightly more <laughs> Yes, it was more fun. Exciting. Uh, thanks very much for getting in touch. So as you know, you can email books of the year at yahoo.com. You can tweet us at books of the year. Mm-hmm. And we are on Instagram. Very exciting. Yes, yes. We can't wait for that. My issue is to sign up for Instagram, you have to hand over everything to Facebook. And yes. I don't particularly fancy But it looks that. like Twitter is going to hell in a handcart, so we're going to have to find some other ways of, uh, of communicating true. with people, aren't we? Okay. Uh, Suzanne says, because uh, uh, last time we were on, it was with Jodie Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan. Suzanne says, as with all of Jodie Pico's books, I was touched by every storyline throughout the book. Jenny Boylan brings her voice in seamlessly to make this book and the topics in it so important, I highly recommend Mad Honey. Yes, Neris on Twitter says, your episode with Jodie Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan was an enjoyable listen. Thank you. I will definitely be looking out for Mad Honey. And she says she already has a little Jodie corner on her bookshelf. In fact, she I think she included a picture of that as well. Neil Denham, I would... Never normally even think about picking up a Jodie Pico book, so he hasn't got a Jodie Corner no, in his house. No, no. But having heard Jodie and Jenny on your podcast recently, I think it sounds really interesting. I'm now very keen uh, to read it. If you missed that episode, you can get it where you got this one. And an email from Sal in Chester says, Dear Simon and Matt, I was listening to you talking about a book you would reread every Christmas or not in, in Simon's case. I can say, as someone who rereads A Christmas Carol every year, that you will not be disappointed. Each year I learn something new or see something different in one of the characters. It's a truly wonderful book and experience, which I look forward to every December. So there you go, you see. Yeah, I mean, I th- did I mention that as one of the books I have? It's about the only book that I have reread. Did you say that? I thought you said, no, I never, in ever. General, as I'm, a, as in general, I don't. OK. Well, we have so many other books to read. I have, That's I, true. I, there's so many new books. Why would I go back and 
read another one. What kind I of life do you what kind of bohemian life do you think I've got? <laughs> I haven't got time to reread a book. Is that the definition of bohemian lifestyle is rereading books? Yes. In your caravan. Yeah, with open toed sandals <laughs> and a cravat. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And a Marlborough light. <laughs> Marlborough yes. No, actually, not a, a probably no. a Goulois in a cigarette up, holder. I thought, yes. I thought so, with your dealer probably just coming what? a little bit later on. You can't trust people who read books. <laughs> I don't know how we got into that. OK. Well, if you've got sp enough spare time, who has enough spare time to reread re a book? book? So that's, that, that's the gateway to suddenly finding yourself yes. with a dealer coming round. If, you're, <laughs> if you reread book. books on a regular basis, there's something wrong. But OK, right, right. <laughs> Sorry, got anyway. a bit distracted. Anyway, if you want to get in touch, please uh, use one of any of the aforementioned ways. The email is the most conventional, and it also means you don't have to sell out your soul or any of your rights. <laughs> no, no. Or your data. That's true. Just email books of the year at yahoo.com. Swallow yes. the fact that it's Yahoo and just... Because it's fine, they don't... It's Yahoo, also, it, Mr and Mrs Yahoo don't get any money from no, us. No, that's true. And isn't it weird how email has now become the sort of vanilla way of getting in touch? How something that sort of 10 years ago felt so cutting edge is now, oh, or you could just, you know, email us as if you're writing it on Slate. Yeah, well, that's, mm. the, that's the one I would recommend because yeah, it's regular and it doesn't involve you getting involved in any unwise <laughs> social media posting. Here we go. Anyway, uh, Twitter is Books of the Year and Instagram, where youngsters are. All the cool kids. It's all, about the, it's all about the grams. <laughs> you can find us at Pick Any Page. Anyway, we've got a top episode on the way, as you're about to hear. So here we go with another fantastic uh, book of the year. This is Ben McIntyre's Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle. Hello, Ben. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you, Simon. Very nice to see you again. You too. You sir. just produce these <laughs> bestsellers after best. You're like one of the men of the year, really, because <laughs> Rogue Heroes on the television, how, how successful would you say that's been at the moment? Ah, it's been fabulous. <laughs> it's been absolutely extraordinary, really. It's been watched... Uh, the demographic's very much interesting and I suppose also predictable. It's it's 18 to 30-year-olds are watching it multiple times, which is fantastic, and wow. they've commissioned a second season. And No, it's great, and it's a brilliant it's a brilliant production. I absolutely loved it. And Operation Mincemeat, um, that was uh, a, a, a movie I lo absolutely loved it was terrific and i i always thought that it was slightly we'll get onto the book in a moment by mm. the way but op operation <laughs> mincemeat it was a strange title to go with don't you think when they were naming the operation it just sounds well, slightly it, it was intentional no oh, right it, as always spies there's a there's a strict injunction against ever using a code name that gives anything away and spies throughout history in all nations have always violated this rule because they can't resist the idea of having a code name that gives a little hint. And Mincemeat was chosen because it's a dead body. And they just thought it was quite funny to name something that was sort of dead meat as Mincemeat. Wow. And they were going to make Mincemeat of the Germans. So it was a sort of double entendre. Very good. Uh, so uh, your media empire... <laughs> Um, expands and expands. But it does mean that if Ben McIntyre's name is... This is how I see it. Yeah. If ben, Ma ben McIntyre's name is on a book, it's a bestseller. Mm. It's... Uh, we were just talking before we started about how Florence Pugh 
and Toby Jones, who you tell me you were at school with. Like when you see that, you go, I'm going to watch it. I don't know anything about it. I'm going to watch it because it's a benchmark for quality. When your name is on a book, you're thinking, OK, this is going to be fascinating. Well, that's really kind of you, Simon. I mean, this one was a bit of a gamble in some ways. It, it's Colditz is a subject that a lot of us, particularly people of our age, think we sort of know about. We, we, we have a kind of basic sort of Colditz knowledge already. If you grew up in the 70s, you watched that black and white TV series. I did. And and so I was, part of me was thinking, there have been a, quite a lot of books about Colditz. Is this a bit of a gamble? And actually, the more I dug into it, the more I realised all those books, almost without exception, and the TV series, tell one black and white story. It's a very simple moral fable. Is the is the one we've inherited about Colditz, and the real story of Colditz is is very very different. Don't tell me you've made a complex, nuanced <laughs> story. Well, I've tried what I knew not was to. A straightforward one. I tried not to, and I fought it obviously. But but no, there is there is there is there are great shades of different behaviour in Colditz, which I found fascinating. Really, your uh, colleague at the Times, Daniel Finkelstein, has written before about how the further we get away from the kind of post-war consensus stories like this i mean he's not talking about this but mm. we have the freedom to explore these stories in uh with greater nuance and understanding than our parents did because they were too close i think he's absolutely right and the more i dig into this particular period the more i think that is absolutely right we all inherited this quite simple uplifting story from the war that it was you know there were good people and bad people there were winners and losers and you were on one side or you're on the other and the victors were those with righteousness on their sides. And, of course, that is broadly true still. It feels like 70% of the story, actually. It, yeah, it is. But within that are all sorts of much more interesting tales, I think. And Danny's absolutely right. You know, the more you look at them, the more these stories are about good people doing the wrong thing for the right reasons and, and, and you know, people who, are, who aren't made of this kind of straight-grained kind of warrior material that we all grew up with on the Sunday afternoon matinee. You know, these people who just were always going to win the war, you know, the poor chevalier who were always going to kind of come through right. And I think it's much more interesting to have sort of stories from the war that actually ask ask the reader and the viewer much more complicated questions about themselves, what they would have done in these circumstances individually. I went back and watched the TV. Do you remember the TV? I do, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jack Headley, Bernard Hepton, Anthony Valentine as the kind of SS guy who everybody hated. But crucially, also David McCallum. Who I met the other day in New York. He the man turned, from UNCLE. The man from UNCLE. He Bless him, he turned up to a talk I was giving in New York. Wow. Almost completely unchanged, bringing with him, so touching, a sort of signed photograph of himself on set. Wow. And he he looks amazing in this, and Robert Wagner, Robert uh, Wagner. of course, and uh, and then I got the board game for Christmas. <laughs> I got the board game. Yeah, <laughs> you I still got that. it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that is the image for certainly for people our age, you know, loosely defined, yeah. uh, of what Colditz is. So when you were piecing this all together, at what stage was there a moment? Was there a character where you thought, okay, I'm fine. This is the more nuanced and interesting story that I've been looking for. Actually, there were multiple characters. And for me, the eureka moment was the extraordinary collection in the Imperial War Museum of tape recordings of the individuals in this book. And what makes those so interesting is they were gathered in the sort of late 80s and early 90s. So many of these men were in late age by that point. But they talk about their experience in Colditz in a much more kind of 
nuanced and modern way. So they are prepared to talk about the things that they would never have talked about in the 1960s, like race, class, sexuality, mental health, all the things that we're really interested in today that we know are part of human experience. But these were elements that were kind of rigorously, I don't think even particularly consciously, but certainly rigorously excluded from the official as it were, the official history of Colditz. This did, these these subjects did not emerge in the kind of in the sort of traditional mythology of Colditz. Uh, you've given us um, a new favourite German word. Uh, my favourite German word, as Matt knows, up yeah. to this point, is Verschlimbesserung, which we means an improvement which makes things worse. <laughs> Excellent. Which I've experienced many times. Story of my life. Exactly. Yeah. Many people who've worked for any kind of large organisation will yes. go, yeah, yeah, but one. that's the German genius for coming up with one word Fantastic. that describes so much. And you introduce us to the word Deutschfindlich. Yeah. Explain, explain this word and its relevance for the book. Well, it literally means German unfriendly. Um, and it is untranslatable, actually, but it is the, it is the label that the, that the German authorities attached to prisoners of war who had distinguished themselves by being extremely difficult to control. So the most recalcitrant prisoners were labelled Deutschfeindlich. Um, and, and in particular, that meant prisoners of war who had tried to escape from somewhere else. So it was an official, it was an official appellation. You got a special red tab on your file if you were considered to be this kind of, this tricky kind of prisoner. And, of course, the Germans, being rather literal, hadn't realised that, that an awful lot of soldiers were desperate to get this title. It was, it was considered to yeah. be a badge of honour to be, to be labelled Deutschfeindlich. So, so that, and that is what distinguished the vast majority of prisoners in Kolditz were considered to be troublemakers, and that's why they were all put together. And the logic was that somehow they would be easier to control if they were all put in one place. Of course, that was... Here we are, there's an improvement that immediately <laughs> actually has the reverse yes. effect. It actually, of course, they then encouraged each other to escape and it became a kind of escape academy, really, where everyone was vying with everyone else to get out. In, in retrospect, it's obvious, isn't it? If you put <laughs> all the escapers together, mm. they are going to try to escape and with greater... Uh, tenacity and ingenuity than ever before. Ah, but the Wehrmacht was one step ahead because, of course, it had, it had decided that it would. The reason for doing this was they would put them in, the, in a prison that was impossible to escape from. Mm. Ah, you see. But again, a big mistake because they chose an 11th century Gothic castle on in the east of Germany, built on the edge of a cliffside, which looks terrifying uh, and looks impregnable. And in fact, it would be a very difficult place to attack. It was actually a very bad place to put a prison because it was full of holes. It was so old, it had five different sewer systems. It had lots of bricked-up doorways. It had ancient medieval locks. I mean, as the, as the wonderful German security head of security, a character I love in this book, observed, he said, there'll never be a worse place to put a prison camp. <laughs> it, I, I, when you said before, Ben, that this book was something of a gamble, I remember you coming on uh, the podcast to talk about uh, Red Sonia, and, and we asked you at the end of that what, what you were going to be doing next, and you said, I'm going to be writing this book about Colditz. And I was sold then. So I don't see this as a gamble at all. <laughs> I was absolutely hooked from, from the beginning. Let's, you've just, just there touched on something I want to talk a little bit more about, which is let's talk a little bit more about Colditz itself, about the castle, because my understanding obviously board game and tv show all from fiction 
I had no idea how close Colditz was to surrounding people, to, to, to villages, to, to, to regular Germans. And um, there's, there's one sequence where um, some of the POWs are able to watch ladies undressing in their in their uh, in <laughs> perhaps leaving the leaving the curtains over open for them for them to observe them and they're that close it's that you've got um aerial shots of the surrounding area let's just talk a little bit more about the castle itself its history but also just how close it was to to nearby people the castle almost literally leans over the town i mean it's it's only about 100 yards away from the nearest civilian building. So in a strange way, although it's a prison camp, it is part of the, the Colditz community. And and the prisoners were in there so long that they, they came to recognise various people in the village and, and had a system for communicating with them. And you mentioned, yes, this, this hilarious thing that they invented called a lecture scope. Which was a kind of... Um, I don't remember this in the TV show. <laughs> it definitely didn't appear in the TV show. Well, this was a thing that was invented uh, so on the, on, the, on the side of the castle looking down on the village. So exactly, they could watch um, the girls sunbathing and um, getting dressed and undressed. And I, it's hard to tell whether the German girls knew they were being watched. The Brits certainly thought they were, but this lectroscope was fiercely fought over. But, but it is interesting that... I mean, we'll, perhaps we'll get to this, but, but actually... Communications were established with people within the village and particularly with a cell of anti-Nazi resistance operatives who were operating within the village. Again, it's a subject that's never been written about before. Believe it or not, it, it came about through a love affair. There was a love affair that took place between a rather dashing Czech fighter pilot called Cheko Chalupka um, who managed, contrived to sort of start a love affair with the dental assistant, Irma Wernicke, from the town, in the train on the way to Kolditz. And at the end of this, it was a long train journey, he was in manacles, but nonetheless, hang on, she hang whispered on. to him... He's starting a love affair whilst in manacles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he has he has soldiers on either side of yeah, him guarding him. It's like a bondage him. train. Yeah, it's a bondage train. But he sort of starts this conversation, let's say a tendresse before it's anything else. And she whispers, you know, come down, get yourself down to the dentist and we'll we'll meet again. And amazingly, old Checo then this is a slightly painful moment, chips one of his teeth with a rock in order to be taken down to the dentist where he bribed the dentist with cigarettes in order to spend some lovely time with Irma in the back room. He did this ten times. Has he got any teeth left? By the end of the war, his snap. teeth were in an appalling state. <laughs> but his love life was going gangbusters. <laughs> but, but that then was the communication link to this resistance cell. And actually, those anti-Nazi... There weren't very many in, in Colditz Town, but there were some, mostly young, were passing on astonishing volumes of really valuable intelligence to Britain's MI9. As a whole, that's a whole drama series right there. I mean, that is that is incredible. Just just that relationship could be the spine of a whole new series, which I'm. Let me just on. give <laughs> let me just give you the last bit of it. So, yes. Checo, who was a completely faithless cad, really disappeared. Obviously, at the end of the war, and poor old Irma was left behind with the Soviets rolling in, and she just escaped in time, ended up in California, where she married Ronald Reagan's bodyguard. Wow. There you go, there's episode two, there or series two. <laughs> you mentioned MI9 just in the, the end of your answer. A lot of people will have gone, well, I know about five and six. Um, tell us a little bit about MI9 and also this 
character Christopher Clayton Hutton, or Clutty, who gets his own chapter. He gets his own chapter. Um, MI9 was the branch of British intelligence that was responsible for prisoners and, and really anyone who was downed behind the lines, including airmen who were shot down and so on. So MI9 was both an intelligence gathering operation, but more fundamentally it was there to try to aid prisoners and, and encourage prisoners to escape, whether they were long-term prisoners in prisoner of war camps or people who had recently been shot down. And in order to do this, they produced an astonishing amount of escape kit because getting out of Kolditz was very difficult, but getting out of Germany was even harder. You had to have money, you had to have false papers, you had to have disguises, you needed compasses and maps and so on. And, and these were produced in vast quantity in Britain by... The presiding genius of this was a man called Clutty, Christopher Clayton Hutton, who was is just one of my favourite characters ever because he's hopeless, really, at normal life. He can't sort of do, he failed as a journalist, he failed as an actor, he failed as a soldier. But he was a brilliant inventor and he dug himself a special laboratory under his garden in Surrey where he invented an astonishing array of, of escape equipment. More than half the people who got out of occupied Europe or Germany were carrying maps made by Clayton Hutton. That's astonishing. And he worked out how to hide compasses inside a walnut and how to... My own favourite of his inventions was a sort of... was a special button sewn onto a tunic which contained a compass, but it unscrewed the wrong way. The th impeccable theory being that Germans were so logical, they'd never try and unscrew anything the wrong way. Complete nonsense, actually, because I think they they rumbled it pretty immediately. But um, but no, he was, he, was a, he was a really fertile mind, old... Clutty, and he never got any recognition, and he, you know, he, 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 still today, barely anyone knows about him, and I love him because he's an illustration of the way that the war is. We often think of war is always fought by guns and bombs and bullets and tactics and strategies and so on. Actually, wars are fought in all sorts of other ways. Intelligence, espionage, obviously, is one of my interests, but, but also this kind of lateral thinking, this kind of inventor's brilliance that really made a huge difference to thousands of lives. Yes. The ingenuity of Clutty is astonishing. The ingenuity of the prisoners of war, by the way, in parenthesis, prisoners of war being the plural, but POWs with an S at the end of the W always feels a little... How do you say that out loud? Anyway. <laughs> but And those tiny micro <laughs> examples which you're giving are, are, for me, absolutely fascinating. But for a lot of people, again, going back to the board game, again, going back to the TV series, they might be thinking the glider. The, <laughs> yes. Uh, of which and you have, rightly. Of which you have a photograph, the most astonishing, you know, fine, you might want to tunnel out. We're kind of used to that. Fine, you might want to bribe or sleep your way out. But to fly out? <laughs> I know. It is amazing. I mean, I didn't really believe it. I thought it was one of those made-up stories. It's not. The blueprints for the building of it are in the book. And it was an amazing feat of engineering. In the in the final year of, of Colditz's life, really pretty much the entire community got together to build this glider. It was going to be a two-man glider. They, they created a kind of um, workshop in one of the attics, uh, which, amazingly, the Germans didn't spot that the attic had somehow shrunk by six feet. You could only access it from the bottom. It was built out of 600 different bits of wood. The frame was made from um, uh, bits of metal taken from um, bunk beds. It was cased in sort of mattress 
ticking soaked in porridge to make it stiff <laughs> enough to fly. And the idea was that when, when, when the time came, they would build a sort of runway on the longest apex of the roof, the longest roof. And they had this all planned, like a sort of saddle arrangement. They would then, with a system of ropes and pulleys, fill a bath with cement, drop it as a counterweight off the edge of the roof, and the weight of this would catapult the glider into the air just far enough to get it across the river. We're laughing. It might well have worked. Do you think? Well, I don't know. It would have required a combination of climatic factors and others that would have been very hard to judge, but they had it all planned. That said, it might have just been a very, very short flight indeed. I mean, it might well have just plummeted straight to Earth. Channel 4 did at one point try and reenact it. I thought it was a little bit of a con because while this thing flew, it didn't have anyone sitting in it. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly an experiment. Let's talk about um, Eggers. Mm. So, Eggers is... I don't, I don't think Commandant's right, but he's hes certainly in charge of, of the camp sort of day-to-day. And if this were fiction... His is a character that you think that's far too well drawn. This guy is an—he's an anglophile. Mm. He—he's ha- in love with the idea of the English gentleman, mm. and yet here he is in charge of these English or the, uh, a number of uh, nationalities within the camp, but um, in charge of these English prisoners of war, and sets up his own anti-escape committee. There are so many elements to him that that I adore. And also the, the the element that he, you could, well, I'm guessing from his diaries, secretly could see the way the war was going and actually just wanted this, oh, the Germans are going to lose, we are going to lose, and actually we probably probably deserve to. Mm. Um, but t- tell us more about Eggers, because he's such a fascinating character. Well, he's Lieutenant Reinhold Eggers, who was, um, he was an extraordinary man. I mean, he was he was highly civilised, highly educated, not a Nazi. I mean, he was he was an old-fashioned... Prussian military officer. I mean, he wanted to win the war, don't get me wrong, but he did not believe in the whole fascist experiment at all. And he'd been, amazingly, a school teacher in Cheltenham before the war. Wow. Where he taught in, uh, in the local grammar school. And that gave him a slightly warped perception of British people um, because he could never quite work out when he got back into college why the prisoners were always so rude to him. You <laughs> said the people of Cheltenham are unrepresentative. Well, they were, he was always said they were always frightfully polite to me in Cheltenham. And you know, I got into Colditz and they were all extremely nasty. But he's fascinating. And he's in a way, he's the hidden second narrator of this story because his sensibility is so interesting. I mean, he was a fastidious, slightly boring, very kind of precise figure. And and his account, his diary is extraordinary, his account of his own life as he sees the Third Reich fall apart. And yet he has to maintain sort of discipline within the within the within the castle. I mean he was not above, you know, he, he but he he wasn't above you know, people would be shot if they didn't stop when they were trying to escape. He was not above planting spies and so on. But he wasn't a brute. He wasn't a savage this was not a concentration camp. It's a point that needs to be made, actually, because our idea of a prisoner of war camp is that it must be a place of sort of routine savagery. Actually, Colditz, it was no holiday camp, but it wasn't like that. It, it was a camp for officers, and therefore they had certain rights under the Geneva Convention, and it was run by the German army. It wasn't run by the SS. So it didn't have that kind of that flavour of, of pure brutality. I wonder if that's that's the key to then to one of the other... Strong themes that comes through this, Ben, is the fact that it, in Colditz, I mean, I'm using the term loosely, it felt like a civilised war. 
It felt that, like, that there were rules that were followed, that that brutality that we associate with so much of Nazi rule wasn't there. Particularly illustrated, I thought, by the fantastically named Pierre-Marie Jean-Baptiste Mérès Lebron, <laughs> who escaped, I think, through leapfrog, essentially, <laughs> over the wall. Or saute-mouton, as we now know. Saute-mouton. But, but the example of his escape and his luggage illustrates a kind of Second World War experience that I think we've forgotten. Absolutely. I mean, there was a kind of chivalry element to this. The, the, you know, this was the Wehrmacht. It wasn't the SS. And these were officers. And, and Mérès Lebrun is a brilliant example. He was a rather sort of soigné French cavalry officer, very, very proud of his wardrobe, always beautifully turned out, who, as you say, leapt over the fence like a, like a thoroughbred in a steeplechase and then more or less ran to the Swiss border in his gym kit, rather smart gym kit. And then he sent, uh, he'd left behind his luggage, which included a set of rather smart suits, and he left a message for the commandant saying, could you please return these to me? <laughs> Amazingly, the commandant did. He, he shipped them to Orange, to, to Mérès Lebrun's hometown, whereupon his, his wardrobe was complete again. It's just one example of the kind of, the extraordinary sort of, in a way, the Germans were fascinating this way. They, they, they deeply resented any suggestion that they were savages, that they were barbarians. And they, so they wanted to make a point about sticking to the Geneva Convention. The other great example, I thought, was when Douglas Bader, perhaps the most famous prisoner in Colditz, when he was bailing out of his Spitfire, he had two artificial legs from an earlier flying accident. One of his legs got stuck in the, in the joystick as he was bailing out and was torn off. Amazingly, the Germans... They captured him with one leg, obviously, uh, sent a message to British intelligence saying Douglas Bader needs another leg. <laughs> Amazingly, they flew out a second leg in an operation brilliantly codenamed Operation Leg. <laughs> <laughs> Reach for the Sky was, oh, his, yeah. uh, was, was, right. was the movie. That That's was... right. One aspect, again, as, as you find and explain this sort of more nuanced uh, world, of Colditz. So on the one hand, it is a place of rules and it is a place where the commandant wants order. On the, but also you uncover uh, interesting detail about, for example, the French. Uh, could you just tell us a bit about the anti-Semitism that was in the camp, which I, I knew nothing about, and also, which of course is obvious when you think about it, the fact that France was divided, the fact that there was occupied France and there was Vichy France and how that played into Colditz. One of the, one of the overarching themes of this book is that the, the, the men inside this prison brought with them preconceptions, prejudices, biases, attitudes from the outside, from the world they'd known before. And, and not only did they retain them inside Colditz, in some ways they exaggerated them inside Colditz with such an artificial world they were creating in there. And, and one of the early incidents, the French contingent actually outnumbered the British to begin with. And quite soon after they'd arrived, some of the French officers, the Aryan French officers, who were mostly people who still supported Vichy, they were, they'd been captured by the Germans, but they, they supported the Pétanist collaborationist government in, in southern France, demanded that their Jewish compatriots, the Jewish French officers, be housed separately. They said, we are not, we, we, we refuse to be billeted with these people. And so sure enough, the Germans, seeing a propaganda opportunity, moved them from the French quarters into separate Jewish quarters, which immediately became known as the ghetto. And, and it's an astonishing, 
but even for the time, it was pretty remarkable. I mean, this caused a huge cleavage, a huge split between the French officers demanding this anti-Semitic measure and the British. The British were furious about it and indeed made a point of inviting the Jew, the Jewish contingent to their mess and so on. But it was, it was just a sign. It wasn't the only one. I mean, race was a very difficult subject in Coldish. The British had their own prop, their own issue with race as well. It's not, it's not as if, you know, we sort of imagine that somehow these characters, because they were heroic in lots of ways and they were tough and they were resourceful, will have been will have will have reflected our own views and they don't they are they are they are they are symptomatic of their own times let's talk a little bit more about those divisions then let's let's uh, dig a little deeper because much as i my instinct is when people pick up the book they are they are coming for the tales of the escape attempts and the more ridiculous the better However, the theme that I took from having read it is about the class divisions, the very, very clear class divisions within the uh, within the the, the uh, from the officers to the lower orders, and how how those were imposed not by the Germans, not by the captors, but by the captives themselves. Let's talk a little about that. That's absolutely right. There was running through the middle of Kolditz was an unbridgeable social chasm because as as officers they had the right to orderlies to ordinary soldiers privates to look after them as their servants and these were also prisoners of war and their jobs were to cook and clean and polish the boots and so on they lived in separate quarters in Colditz and they were not allowed to escape that's one of the things that i found so astonishing that and and to our modern minds that seems inconceivable that one set of prisoners should be allowed to seek their liberty and another, simply by virtue of the fact that they belong to a different social class, could not be allowed to. So you've got this kind of working class within cult. In fact, at one point, quite early on in the story, the, the, the orderlies went on strike, which I loved. I mean, they, they downed tools and said, we're not serving these officers anymore. Um, you know, we're in exactly the same position. Obviously, the strike didn't last very long because the Germans just shipped them out to another prison. But it was quite an interesting moment that, that showed that sort of, in a way, industrial relations were being brought into Colditz at the same time. So you had this working class at one end, but you also had an aristocracy within Colditz. There was a group called the Prominente who were selected by the Germans as being individuals of particular social or political value. So there were two nephews of the king, there was Churchill's nephew, there was the son of the German ambassador, and they were kept in separate quarters under very, very close guard, essentially as hostages. But even within them was another socio-economic grouping. So that, believe it or not, there was a Bullingdon club yeah. in Colditz. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Did they spoil everything <laughs> as well? Well, there, there weren't very many restaurants to wreck in Colditz, yeah. alas. But um, but no, in order to belong to the Colditz Bullingdon club, you had to have belonged to the original Bullingdon club. And they were completely rigorous about who was allowed in and who was allowed out. I mean, and, and it's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, we... Brits are so strange. Why is it that whenever three Englishmen of a certain class are gathered together, they will two of them will form a club to exclude the third? It's a, it's, it's just a madness. I don't. But it is it's 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 fascinating. I think, and it's sort of again, it was this sort of heightened sense of kind of recreating a world they'd known before. Just just give a, a maybe we we hinted at this at the beginning. How many, but how many different national groupings were there? 
again, we we think of it as being a British story. It's really it it the prison became an Anglo prison towards the end. The last two years, it was only British Commonwealth and Americans in there. Um, but to begin with, it was. The Poles were there before the Brits ever arrived. So there were Poles, there were French, there were Dutch, there were Belgian. There were lots of different Commonwealth soldiers. The Canadians were also there before before the Brits. And and that's one of the things that gave cold. It's a very sort of special atmosphere, if you like, because these different national groupings sort of got on very well with each other to some extent, but also competed with each other to get out of the place. So you had a kind of almost like an Olympic system where everyone was trying to sort of um, leapfrog everyone else. And in fact, they discovered that, in fact, so many uh, escape attempts were happening by the different national groups that they were tripping each other up. Uh, They were literally undermining each other at one point because there were five different tunnels being built out of coal. So there was a sort of international committee set up brilliant sort of bureaucratic madness like the EU. They decided they would sort of get together and thrash things out and that somehow they would make it all great, which was fine. And it did work for a bit. And so the, um, you know, there was an escape officer for each national group. It was, it was a bit like the EU, really, in the sense that it worked very well until the Brits got annoyed by it and walked out. <laughs> With Metaphor that, alert. That, yeah. so, get the impression the French were the best at escaping. The French were the most individualistic at escaping. They weren't. They didn't have any truck with this idea that they were all going to have to work together. And but they they were very good, particularly at the beginning, at sort of ad hoc operations, spotting an opportunity and then slipping out through it. Um, they also the French another amazing feat of engineering. They built a tunnel called Le Metro, which was 140 meters long. It started in the clock tower. It went down through the sleeves of what had been the winding mechanism for the clock. It then went through two floors into the basement, then it went under the chapel, and it ended up 10 feet from the cliff face. It had its own ventilation system. It had its own telephone system, so that if the, if, if the Germans arrived, they could actually call up and say, actually, I think Fritz is on his way, you'd better get out. Um, and the only reason that didn't... That was intended for a mass breakout of the French, and it would have worked, actually, but it was betrayed in the end. Uh, an individual who I identify in the book tipped off the Germans yeah. and they were all caught. Uh, on the back of... So, uh, Ben, uh, we haven't described the cover of the oh, book, no, we which we normally do at the yeah. beginning. Sorry, Matt. Do you want to just... Because I, I want to mention the back of the book, but yes. mention what we've got on the On, on the, the front, front. It's, well, it's, it's dominated by red, black and white, and right across the centre is Colditz, prisoners, prisoners of the Castle. But then above and below the title is Colditz itself and then um, a, a black and white picture of some of the inmates. And then right at the top, the Sunday Times best-selling author, Ben McIntyre. And, and on the back... It says, the real Colditz story, so this is obviously put together by marketing, asks a simple question, what would you have done? I mean, actually, it doesn't. I mean, I, I think the book is far more interesting than, yeah. than that <laughs> because I think most people go, I wouldn't have had a clue, mate. You know, I'm, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But you must have, in your examination, Ben, of all these extraordinary lives that went in on the German side, the Polish side, the French side, the British side, and so on, how would you have fared? If this is the question which is being asked on the well, back of your book. Well, it is a question. It's a question that I asked myself and obviously f- totally failed to answer throughout the writing of it, is is which of these very different sorts of person would I have been in this circumstance? Because 
Yes, there were these incredible escapers, people like Pat Reed, who was the man who basically invented the mythology of Coldest. He invented the board game. Um, and he was one of those cheerful, mustachioed chaps who's never got down by anything. There was never a dull moment in Colditz, he said. Actually, that was totally untrue. There was mostly dull moments in Colditz. But so there are people like that. But then there are lots of other different sorts of people. And there were many people in Colditz who didn't want to escape, who, who realised that actually, particularly towards the end, when it was going to become... It was your chances of survival were very small. So I think I would probably have been... There was a good library in Colditz. They had a lot of very good books. Penguin was shipping them in every week. I think I would have been one of those people, and they were pretty numerous, who sort of sat down, read as much as they could, and chronicled what was going on inside this this strange place. So I think there's a whole rich variety. There were traitors in Colditz. There were cowards in Colditz. And there were, on the other side of the scale, there were people of incredible ingenuity and, and resilience. So it does, I think, shine a little light into what ordinary people do in extraordinary circumstances that are not of their choosing. My favourite quote I just want to mention before we finish, it's slightly trivial. Um, we, we mentioned about various affairs and that kind of thing, mm. affairs of the heart. Mm. And you, there's a section where you talk, you talk about sexual frustrations, but when you're really, really hungry, how that doesn't, you know, if you're hungry, that's the thing that you need to sort out. And there was one guy who you quote, who's, and I said, if you had to choose between the most beautiful woman in the world and a cheese roll, <laughs> you'd choose the cheese roll. I think he speaks for all of us, don't you? I mean, I think that is a universal attitude. A good cheese roll. I mean, it would have to be quite With a pickle. nice one. Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. Uh, ben McIntyre, thank you so much. It's always uh, a joy to have one of your books. Do you... You're going to do the Q&A in, in, in another podcast for us very uh, very shortly. Do you know what your next topic is? I do. I, I can't tell you exactly, oh. but it's, it's a Cold War story. I, I think that later Cold War is absolutely fascinating, and I think it tells us so much about why the world is the way the world is today. I mean, I think if you want to understand Ukraine, you need to understand what happened in the spy war in the Cold War. Already looking for Already it. Already sold. Already <laughs> sold. We'll yeah. book you for a couple of years or 18 months, whenever it is. Ben McIntyre, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to show you sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.